Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Thank you, Dave, for praying over the next period and not limiting me to a certain 30 minutes or 40 minutes. So I think that was Dave giving his okay that I can go as long as I want to, right? That's what the prayer meant. He's not, he's not nodding or shaking his head. He seems nervous to actually give a vote on that. <laughs> the next hour. That's bold. Um, the problem is, is I wouldn't have any problem talking for an hour, so we could do that. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Lord willing, we'll finish the, uh, the end of chapter 3 today. This next section includes family members, controversy with family members, family members having different opinions than each other, something that we've probably run into in the past year or so, different opinions, and not just with people that you bump into onto the street or that you see in the news, but with family members. There's a couple of verses in here that have caused many people to lie awake at night, to worry in fear, trepidation, wondering if, if they've committed what is in the verses. And so we're going to walk through this together and see what the Lord has for us. Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 20, and we'll read down to the end of the chapter. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out the demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And the crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's just bow in a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for your word. And that includes being thankful for the passages that rebuke us and show us where we're wrong. It includes the passages that make us fearful and afraid because we don't know what they mean. We are grateful for your word in its entirety. We pray now that as we come to it, you would help us to see and understand who Jesus is and what he's doing, what he's teaching, how he's reaching out to the lost, how he's calling to himself those who are unclean and making them clean. We pray that you would help us to see how he's expanding your kingdom, how he's going and destroying and pushing away 
dismantling the kingdom of Satan and pushing out and expanding the kingdom of God. Lord, we ask now for peace and comfort and for wisdom to discern what you have for us today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Every family has that crazy person in it, right? And as I say that, don't, don't, point, don't point at somebody. If you're sitting with them, don't actually point at them if they're the crazy person. But you know how there's, there's always that, there's always crazy Uncle Ed or crazy Aunt so-and-so or maybe it's Grandma or a cousin. I know who it is in my family. I'm not going to tell you, but I know who it is. And you, you have to have that answer quick, right? Who's the crazy person in your family? Oh, it's them. It's somebody else. It's not me. And if you're sitting there and you're going, well, I'm not so sure my family has a crazy person. It's because you're the crazy person. <laughs> if you can't point the finger at somebody else, you're the crazy one. Everybody else will point the finger at you because you're the one that is a little bit off their right. It doesn't mean you don't love them. It doesn't mean that they're not a part of your family and that you don't enjoy having them around at, at family reunions and such. But they, we all have family members that you look at and you go, where are you coming from? Like, not only what side of the bed did you wake up on, but did you wake up in a house today? Like, you, you seem really just, their thoughts are all over the place. They're always talking about stuff. They're always, and we love them. But we still think they're crazy. Jesus was that crazy person, according to his family. He is out of his mind. Now, that doesn't mean they didn't love him. Doesn't mean that they didn't care for him. Doesn't mean that they didn't value who he was. It just meant that they looked at what he was doing and what he was teaching and everything that was going on in the first three chapters, and they go, Jesus seems nuts. What is going on with him? What is he doing? He is out of his mind. And they could have been worried for a couple of reasons. Because it could, it could be genuine, right? We can actually care for people even though we think they're nuts, right? We can still love them. There could have been a sense, though, where there, were, there was pride. They were, they were worried about Jesus because they were worried about how he reflected their family, Right? Sometimes we, we call those people the black sheep of the family and they leave that black mark on the family. We look at them and we go, we don't, we don't approve of what they do and it actually, we don't really like how that reflects on us as a whole, as a family as a whole. That's possible, the way that they were looking at Jesus. There could have been a sense of fear. There could have been this sense of, well, Jesus has been stirring up all sorts of controversy with the, with the scribes and the teachers of the law and the Pharisees and he actually is causing problems for us. If it comes down the line that we're related to him and he's the one that's caused all these problems for the religious leaders of not just Jerusalem but, but the entire Hebrew nation for all of the Israelites, that could cause us problems. We could get kicked out. We could lose our status. What does that mean for us if he starts stirring up all this controversy? And like I said, it could be genuine concern because we do know that even in verse um, 20, he could not even eat. And we know that he got up early in the morning to go out and to pray. He's giving up sleep. He stayed up super late and he got up super early and he's, who knows how many hours of sleep he's actually getting. He's not eating. He's not sleeping. There's crowds following him everywhere. They might actually be concerned, Jesus, what is going on? You're not being healthy. It doesn't look like you're being a healthy individual in the way that you're approaching life. What, what is going on? He's not sleeping, he's not eating, because this drive for his mission, this mission of expanding the kingdom, what he's been preaching, it's taken over everything that he is, everything that he does, everything that he says is revolving around his one mission. 
Maybe it's a mixture of all three. Maybe there's a little bit of fear, maybe a little bit of pride, maybe a little bit of concern. But their assessment of this is he is out of his mind. He's nuts. Doesn't mean they don't love him, but they're concerned. And they went out, we're told in verse 21. When his family heard it, they went out to seize him. They went out from presumably Nazareth. They live in Nazareth. Jesus was from Nazareth. Remember, we got this from the beginning of the gospel account, that Jesus had set up shop in Galilee, that he had gone out from Galilee as home base, and he goes out and he preaches and he comes back. And in all likelihood, the home that he's in, the only home that's been referenced so far, is Peter's house, Simon and Andrew, and Andrew's, or Simon's mother-in-law, that house was likely the house that the four amigos dropped their buddy down through the roof. It's likely this house. And they set out from Nazareth so that they might seize him. It's a very strong phrase. Not just, they set out so that they might have a, an informal chat over coffee. They set out so that they might seize him, take control of him. The terminology will be used later in Mark and is used often in the New Testament to talk about to bind, to deprive freedom of. You think of the Pharisees at the end of the gospel account, Judas, he's betraying Jesus and he brings the Roman guards and what do they do? They are seeking Jesus so that they might seize him, arrest him, take him into their control. And that's what his family's looking to do, not, not by bringing the Roman guards, but they themselves want to seize Jesus. They want to make him stop doing what he's been doing. We're not told exactly their motivation, but they, we do know what they think about him. He's out of his mind. That is made even more clear if we, if we skip 22 to 30. If you jump down to verse 31, that's made even more clear if we, we jump in at verse 32. A crowd was sitting outside, was sitting around him, and they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. They're seeking him. That phrase was used by Peter back in chapter 1 when Jesus had gone out to pray in the morning. Peter and the other disciples, they come after Jesus and they go, Lord, what are you doing out here? Everyone is seeking you. And if you'll remember, I didn't really remember if I said this or not, so I'll tell you now. But if you do remember, it's because I said it before. What Peter was saying was, everybody's seeking you because they want you to do something for them. They want you to bow to their will. What Peter was saying is, we're seeking you because we want to get you to do stuff for us. The crowds want you to do stuff for us. They want to control Jesus. It's the same thing here. Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. They want to control you. They want to make sure that you stop doing what they think is inappropriate. And that's more than merely looking for. They're not just looking to see him to have a chat. They want to control. They want to stop him from doing what he's doing. So, why then this break? We get in verse 21 and 22, the family setting out from Nazareth to come to Jesus. They think he's nuts. They want to stop him. And then we don't get to them actually getting there, getting to the house, getting to where he is, getting to where the crowds are surrounding him. We don't get to that until verse 31. What's with the section in between, 22 to 30? What's with the break? There's two possible reasons, and I think both are legitimate and valid. One, it accounts for the travel time. Why this break in between? Well, they set out in verses 20 and 21, and that takes time. They have to actually travel down. 
So what is Mark doing? He's accounting for conversations that took place in between the time that they set out and the time that they arrived before they get to the house in verse 31. The other reason, which I think is far more important at this point, is it's a literary, literary technique. It's something that Mark does intentionally and that he will do a number of times throughout his gospel account, and it's called the sandwich technique. It's not complicated because it's a sandwich. Everybody knows what a sandwich is. It's not some big theological term. It's basically two things on either end with something in between. That wasn't complicated, right? So you get the family coming to Jesus at the beginning and the family getting to Jesus at the end. It's the family wanting to talk to Jesus at either end and then there's something in between. And the things at either end are supposed to help us understand what's in between. Mark will do this later in another account. You know the story of Jairus and his daughter? Jairus' daughter is sick. She's dying. He comes to Jesus. Jesus, come, come heal my daughter. You're, you're, our, you're our only hope in this scenario. We need your help. And he sets out. And then there's a break in between where they set out and when they actually get there. And there's the woman who's been bleeding for years. And there's that pause and break in between the narrative of Jesus. He's focused on Jairus and his daughter. He said, I will come and I will help. And then there's that break. And then he actually gets to the daughter later. He, he will also do it, Jesus will also do this, and Mark will, uh, will account this for us, when Jesus actually gets to Jerusalem in the latter half of the gospel account. Jesus will be coming and there's a fig tree. And there's no figs on the tree, so Jesus curses the tree. Then they go into Jerusalem and Jesus cleanses the temple. He kicks out all the money changers and all the money lenders and all the people who are robbing the people, um, interest rates and all this stuff, he kicks them out and he cleanses the temple. And then they leave Jerusalem and Peter says, look the fig tree, Lord, look what you did. It's all withered. It's destroyed. There's a point to that. Jesus is doing that on purpose and Mark is doing this on purpose to help us understand what's in between. So what's in between? Well, the family has thought they figured out the why. That is the why of what Jesus is doing. Why is Jesus talking this way? Why is he preaching these things? Why is he doing these things? Why is he stirring up all this controversy with the scribes? Why does he do this? They think that they figured out the, the why answer. He's nuts. He's crazy. He's out of his mind. The scribes think that they understand the how. They think they understand how Jesus is able to do this, to do these things. That is, specifically to heal and to cast out demons. They have no doubt that Jesus can do it. That's marked by the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law over and over again. They have no doubt that Jesus can heal. Remember last week, or maybe it was the week before, they have no doubt whether Jesus can actually heal people. They're waiting to see if he's going to do it on the Sabbath. That was the beginning of Mark. Uh, Mark chapter 3, the man with the withered hand. They're waiting to see. They don't doubt it. They just want to see if he's going to do it at the wrong time. So the scribes think they know how Jesus does this. And they come with an official delegation from Jerusalem. The scribes, this is verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem. That is not the scribes from Galilee, not the scribes from the surrounding area. Word has gotten back to Jerusalem that something's going on up there in Galilee. Something's happening. This guy's stirring up all this controversy. And we're not quite sure how to deal with this. He beats us at every turn. He out-talks he out us. And so they come from Jerusalem, and this is part of their plot, right? Remember chapter 3, verse 6, they set out to destroy Jesus. So what they're doing here is their attempt, it's part of their attempt to destroy Jesus, to destroy his ministry, to destroy the value of his word in the eyes of the people. 
And notice how that they're no longer engaging in theological discussion. They're no longer engaging in debate. They're no longer asking Jesus, why do you do this? Why do your disciples not do that? Why do you guys do it this way? What's going on? What, what is your interpretation? Why do you do They're not doing that anymore. Look in verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables. He had to call them to himself. They were out just talking, and what were they saying? He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. He's, they're not even near Jesus. They're going to where Jesus is, and they're just trying to spread rumors about Jesus. They're just out in the crowds talking about Jesus. They're just slandering. They're no longer trying to engage Jesus on philosophical, theological, spiritual, mental debates. They've given up on that entirely. Let's just slander him and maybe people will stop listening to him. We can't defeat him in terms of theological arguments, but we can destroy his character in the eyes of the people. Let's see if we can do that. That's where they're at right now. And he had to call them to himself because they weren't trying to get near Jesus. They weren't trying to talk to him. They wanted to destroy him apart from actually having him present. They weren't even coming to him directly. Maybe that was fear. Maybe that was embarrassment because they didn't know how to... how to talk to Jesus without getting schooled, without getting destroyed in terms of theological arguments. I feel that sometimes. Even if you feel like you're absolutely right, have you ever heard some, somebody talk to you, theological stuff? Maybe It doesn't even have to be theological. It can be spiritual, mental, emotional, political. Do you think you've got the right answer and somebody just knocks it out of the park in their argument and you're just left sitting there going, well, that wasn't fun. Well, I don't want to do that again. So what do you do when you go out? Oh, yeah, you don't want to talk to so-and-so about that. that um, they're not very nice, and they actually are kind of rude to you. Am I the only one that's, that's felt that way? Nobody else willing to admit that? That's fine. But when you, when you lose an argument, you don't like it. And the scribes not only don't like it, but they're the ones in the position of authority within the nation of Israel. They're the ones that everybody is supposed to listen to. And what happens when that is stripped away, when they no longer have that authority because of what Jesus is doing? They're afraid, they're embarrassed, and they're angry. And they want to destroy Jesus by destroying his character in front of the crowds. And the accusation is this. Jesus can cast out. Jesus can act. Jesus can do. Specifically cast out demons. Cast out unclean spirits. He can do that because of demonic authority. They're not doubting his abilities. They're doubting where his power comes from. He is possessed by Beelzebul and the prince of demons. By the prince of demons, he casts out demons. There's a little bit of, um, not ambiguity, a little bit of leeway in terms of understanding what, who is Beelzebul or Beelzebub, depending on your translation. Most scholars say it's Beelzebul and not Beelzebub. And at this point, it doesn't matter because I don't know what either are, right? What it's, it might be referring to Baal, Baal worship, Baal being the Lord of the demonic dynasty, back, going back to the Old Testament, going back to who the nations surrounding the people of Israel, who they worshipped, might be talking about some other type of prince. We know that Satan is referred to as the prince of the power of the air. Is that what this is talking about? The prince of demons, he casts out demons. We're not entirely sure. But Jesus' response raises the accusations. Either way, regardless of whether you understand completely who Beelzebul is or who the prince of demons is, Jesus kind of narrows that down for us. How can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus cuts out all the other garble 
And he says, what you're really trying to say is, is that I'm from Satan. How can Satan cast out Satan? And he actually ups the ante. He actually says, you might be talking about the prince of demons, but who is Satan according to Jewish theology? He's, he's the head honcho. He's not just a prince. He's, he's the guy in terms of the demonic realm. Jesus has come not to just deal with the little guys. He's not come to just deal with these demons who have been possessing people in Galilee. As he's about to explain, he's come to bind up Satan himself and take out the head honcho. It's almost like he's rebuking the Pharisees. You guys are slandering me. You got it all wrong. If you want to slander me, get it right and at least understand who I've come to deal with. I haven't come to just deal with these little guys. I've come to deal with Satan himself. Satan himself is being bound and cast out. And then he uses this parable to help explain that stuff. If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. This just makes sense. Jesus' parable is not difficult to understand. Even Hollywood gets this, right? You watch any movie where there's any tension between the good guys and the bad guys, and the good guys are struggling to defeat the bad guys, and then they start getting at each other's throats, right? You watch any war movie, any war flick, anything with relationships, and when people butt heads, that starts to break apart the relationship and can cause problems in the goal of the movie, right? If Hollywood can get it, I think so can we. Jesus is not saying something profound. He's saying that so, something that's so blatantly obvious that in and of itself, the obviousness of it is a rebuke to the Pharisees. What are you guys talking about? That is utter foolishness. How in the, why in the world would Satan show up and boot out his own minions? Why would Satan cast out himself? That makes no sense. Jesus' parable shows the utter folly of their accusation. Shows the utter folly and foolishness of their attempt of destruction. Guys, you want to destroy me and this is the best you've got? You've got to come up with better if you want to destroy. They can't. This is the best that they've got because they haven't been able to best him in debate. They are resorting to slander and all they've got at this point, well, it's really by Satan that he casts out all these demons. Jesus is very clear. Look in verse 26 and 27. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then he, then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is very clear. Satan is under attack. The scribes saw that. They saw that demons and unclean spirits were being cast out. There was no denying that. There was no denying that Jesus was doing something. And what Jesus is saying is that's happening because God is at work, not Satan. Jesus' work is binding the strong man, that is Satan. He's not coming in under the power of Satan. Satan is not attacking himself. It's not a civil war that's going on within the satanic realm. It's conquest. It's another kingdom coming in and pushing out and destroying and subduing the kingdom that was in place. Jesus is binding the strong man. He's binding Satan. He's limiting Satan's power and he's setting captives free. He's plundering the goods. What are the goods? The goods are the people that Satan has taken captive, the people that he has taken control of. 
And what is Jesus doing? He's coming in and he's binding the strong man, binding Satan up. He's limiting Satan's power and control. And he's setting people free. And that does not happen because Satan is confused or because Satan is upset with some of his minions. Jesus is very clear. A stronger power has come in to bind up the strong man, but he's not the strongest. There is another who is stronger than the strong man. And this kingdom is coming in and invading. And Jesus destroys not just their theological discussions and their theological arguments, he destroys even their slander. And he leaves no doubt about who he is and what he's doing, that he is advancing the kingdom of God. Now, what about verses 28 through 30? What is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and eternal sin? You may have read that verse or the accompanying verses that um, describe this eternal sin, this unforgivable sin, this, this sin that can be committed that leaves you without forgiveness. And you may have worried about that. Have I done this? Have I committed this sin? Have I fallen into this category? Am I now unforgivable? What we should not do as we seek to answer the question of what is the unforgivable sin, what we need to be careful of is not losing sight of the context. Don't lose sight of the the narrative context that is the whole story that's been going on. We're still in the middle of this section in between Jesus' family leaving and Jesus' family arriving. This is all one section in between. We shouldn't lose sight of that narrative context and also don't lose sight of the paragraphical context. Is that a word? Paragraphical? If I say it with confidence, you'll believe me, right? Okay. Don't lose sight of the paragraphical context. Don't lose sight of the narrative context. That is, don't lose sight of the fact about what Jesus is just, what we just walked through in the previous verses. The scribes attributing the spirit-filled work of Jesus as demonic. Remember, at, the, at Mark chapter 1, Jesus was baptized by John out in the Jordan, and the Holy Spirit came down from heaven like a dove and infused Jesus with the spirit-filled power of ministry. Jesus was anointed not, not just by water, but by the Spirit himself for a mission, for something to do. And what was that? To go out and to preach that the kingdom of God is here in the person of Jesus Christ, repent and believe. That mission, that ministry, those objectives were spirit-ordained, spirit-filled, Holy Spirit-filled. And the scribes look at what the Holy Spirit is, is doing and what Jesus is doing and what God the Father is doing, the Trinitarian work of God in setting captives free and expanding the kingdom of God, the scribes look at that and they go, that's the work of the devil. Satan's doing that. They are looking at the work of God and attributing it to Satan. That is, the eternal unforgivable sin in this context is not some undefinable offense against God. We're not left to figure out, well, well, is it murder? Well, maybe... Maybe not murder because there were murderers that were forgiven. Okay, but is it murder five times? Ten times? Is it, what is, what is this stuff? It's not undefinable according to this passage. It is the specific misjudgment that Jesus is motivated by evil rather than by good. It's the specific accusation that Jesus is empowered by Satan and not by God. That is, to simplify it, It's calling what is good evil and what is evil good. 
It's the very reversal of who God is in claiming him to be, actually be evil. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. You cannot look at what the Holy Spirit does in the hearts and lives of individuals and declare that to be evil and find forgiveness. You cannot look at what God does and say that that is the work of the devil and find forgiveness. It's a rejection of who God is. It's a rejection of what he's doing. And it's a misunderstanding and a rejection of what he says we are. Who we are. The question then is, can a Christian do this? Can a Christian look at the work of God and declare it to be evil? Can a Christian look at the work of God and declare it to be the work of Satan? No. Can you, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, look at the salvific work of Jesus Christ and declare that to be evil? That's the very definition of a Christian, is to look at that and declare it to be the most righteous goodness that you've ever seen. Jesus setting captives free, redeeming lost souls. Those that commit this sin, they don't care about it. They don't want to repent of it. They don't want to turn away from it. They are actually happy because they are attempting to destroy that is what, what is good. They're attempting to destroy the good work of God, the good work of Jesus. Blasphemy in this context, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is an expression of defiant hostility towards God. Continual rejection of who he is and what he's doing. They're marked by unrepentance. And it's an eternal sin because it says they are guilty of an eternal sin. How is it an eternal sin? It's an eternal sin because it's eternally committed. Because they never repent. They never want to. They are continually warring against God. They are continually looking at the good work that God is doing and they're saying, no, that is evil, that is wrong, and I reject it. That's why it's an, it's an eternal sin. Now, there's a great comfort for us in verse 28. This is the paragraphical context. This is the sentence before context. We shouldn't lose sight of it. Truly, I say to you, amen. That's that phrase, truly. Truly, truly, surely, surely, assuredly. The word is amen there. We put that at the end of our prayer. We put that at the end of our saying. Let it be done, Lord. In the name of Jesus, may this be true. Jesus puts it at the beginning of his statement. Surely, surely, I tell you. Truly, I say this to you. All sins will be forgiven the children of man in whatever blasphemies they utter. All sins. What distinguishes people who are in the all sins are forgiven category and the you are not forgiven category? Jesus has already preached that. Mark has already lined that out. Repent and believe. That is, if you have repented and you've, you have believed, all your sins have been forgiven. If you have not repented and continually reject the message and testimony of Jesus Christ, you are not forgiven. And as you do that into eternity, that is something we should not lose sight of as well. We should not lose sight of the fact that once we die, unrepentant, if people die in unrepentant sin, we should not think that all of a sudden they're just gone and they no longer sin. Luke helps us see that in Jesus' parable of Lazarus and the rich man. The rich man goes down to hell and Lazarus goes to heaven. And the rich man down in hell, what does he want? 
He doesn't want to be forgiven. He just wants relief. We're not even told that he actually wants to get out of hell. He just wants it to feel a little bit better while he's there. We should not think that unrepentant people, when they die in their sin, all of a sudden stop sinning. It's not the testimony of the New Testament. It's not the testimony of Jesus. And right here, what we get is, if you die in unrepentant sin, there's no forgiveness. But Jesus puts verse 28 first. All sins will be forgiven for those who confess and repent. 1 John 1, 9. It's one that we learned in Awana, or one that you learned in Sunday school. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All of it. The worst things that you've ever done, gone. Paid for on the cross of Jesus Christ. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. All of it's gone. Look, you don't have to get excited over me preaching, but you can't not get excited over that. All of your sins are wiped away by the blood of the Lamb. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's the message that Jesus has come to preach. That's the message that he says right here, you have it if you're in him. And if you're not, you don't. And this is what it means to be a part of the family of God. We get to the section where Jesus' family actually gets there. They get there and they can't get in because of the crowd. And so they send word through the crowd, you know, the telephone game. Tell Jesus that we're here and we're looking for him. We're, trying to, we're, we're looking after him here. And, and so it finally gets to Jesus. Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And Jesus looks around at those who are with him on the inside, not on the outside. And he looks at those who are with him sitting at his feet. Sitting at feet is, yes, a, a sign of learning from, to sit down and, and to be taught by, but it's an act of submission. You can't get up and run away quickly. You are submitting yourself completely to the individual who is in front of you. To kneel is one thing, to sit is another. They are sitting around him. And to be a part of the family of God, Jesus now redefines what it means to be his family. It's no longer by flesh and blood. It's by what? Doing the will of God. Well, what is the will of God? Repent and believe. Be with Jesus. The will of God is to come to him and to re in repentance and faith to see everything that he's doing and declare it as right and good and holy and to accept and understand that Jesus is expanding the kingdom of God and to go, yes, I know that I do not deserve this, but I have the promise that all my sins will be forgiven if I repent and confess. Lord, I repent and I confess and I sit at your feet now. Teach me, lead me, be everything that I need you to be and be with Jesus. We do that in prayer. We spend time with Jesus in prayer. We spend time in Jesus, with Jesus in worship. We spend time with Jesus when we open up our Bibles and we seek to understand more about him and we seek to understand how this is, how the word itself is meant to apply to our lives. We do that. I think this is important as well, considering our current context. It's being together and looking about the about at those who sat around him. He said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister. 
There's no accusation that Jesus does not care about women. Jesus actually adds sisters into his family. Not that they were trying to leave them out. His mother and brothers were outside. He says, no, 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 no. All who come to me in repentance or faith are welcome. All who come to me will be forgiven. And we spend time with Jesus when we do it together. That is when we do this. We have spent time with Jesus this morning in prayer, in singing, praise and worship to him, in opening up his word, and by simply just being together, we have spent time with him. Where two or three are gathered. Now that verse is often misquoted. It's actually in the context of church discipline. That's actually talking about what do you do when somebody's wrong somebody else? Where two or three are gathered together, there I am. But it's certainly true in all contexts. Where two or three are gathered, Jesus is there and we spend time with him together. Well, may God help us to not fret over the worries that we don't need to have. May God help us to praise him as we ought to praise him for the forgiveness that we do have. There will be those who might be sitting in here. There will be those who might be watching from online who have not experienced the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, who have not come to him in repentance and faith. And I tell you right now, if you do not come to him, you will die in your sins and will be eternally cast off from him. That's the truth of the scriptures. That's the message that Jesus has come to tell us. Die apart from him. You will be eternally lost. But don't lose sight of verse 28. All the sins will be forgiven. Everything, all of it. You can't get more than all. There's not another word that could be better than all. It's all encompassing. It's got everything in there. And what Jesus says is turn to him, repent and believe, and everything will be forgiven. Father, help us. Help us to rejoice and be excited over the fact that we have all of our sins wiped away because of the blood of the Lamb because of what he's done for us on the cross. May you excite us about that truth so that we might be spurred on to tell others, whether it be family members who disagree, who might look at us and think we're crazy or we're nuts. Help us to look to Jesus Christ, the most sane man who ever lived, and to recognize that what he teaches is not insanity. It's the greatest truth that the world needs to hear. We ask now that as we we close in worship and song that you would work this truth into our hearts. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.